Thank you very much, Neville, and welcome to this morning's service. Where we're looking at Psalm 106. We're going to continue our praise and worship as we think about the Lord's unfailing faithfulness, his covenant love for his people, despite their many mess-ups. Now, have you ever experienced the situation where something that you've created or proposed, maybe it's an essay, a business case, a piece of art, or a creative idea, you've proposed this, you've put it out there, and someone wiser and more experienced has come along and has left your creation in shreds. They've taken it apart bit by bit and shown to you how this isn't going to work. Not only in the specifics, but also the whole direction in which you are moving is completely debunked. One of my academic supervisors usually had more red pen on my second corrected drafts than on my first attempts at writing my thesis chapters. So we need wise people to guide us down uh, sensible roads when our schemes don't maybe just quite align with where they should be going. A saying attributed to Confucius goes, by three methods we may learn wisdom. First, by reflection, which is noblest. Second, by imitation, which is easiest. And third, by experience, which is the bitterest. Maybe if Confucius had been King Solomon, he would have added the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Anyways, let's think about Israel in the desert, because that's the theme of Psalm 106. These people have been rescued from Egyptian servitude, and they had ample time to reflect on God's commands, every opportunity to imitate them, but it didn't work. So they had to learn by experience, and it was a very bitter experience for them. This psalm that we're going to go through, and we'll read it throughout as we address each chunk of it, it contains a large, really rather depressing middle section, which catalogues many of the specifics of Israel's failures in addition to condemning the whole thrust of the way they were thinking about God. For us as New Testament believers, we have St. Paul's view of these types of stories where he tells the Corinthian and Roman churches that the purpose of the Old Testament scriptures was to furnish us with examples for our instruction that we might have endurance and encouragement. And this is the point of today's psalm. The Lord shows us through experience how and why we should trust his loving promises. Let's read verses 1 to 6. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Now, before we start to launch into this, remember that for God's people at any time of history, what happened to earlier generations can be said to involve later ones, can be said to involve us. God's record isn't so much history to be objectively, dispassionately looked at, but it's memory. We as Christians share that spiritual memory of what is recorded in the Old Testament. And you'll notice in verse 6, it says, both we and our fathers have sinned. Reading this today, we are all in this together. And the sins that we will come across here recorded would be exactly the ones that we would have committed if we were in Israel's shoes. But let us this morning approach the text as the writer does in verse 4, 
with a touching personal prayer that God would remember us. I want us to really root ourselves firmly and individually in this psalm this morning, this psalm of God's covenant faithfulness, so that, yes, it does become an example, but it helps us to endure and be greatly encouraged at this time so we can give praise and thanks to the Lord. Let's go on to 7 and 13. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe, and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, they sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works, they did not wait for his counsel. Unbelief and spiritual amnesia, if you like, become harder and harder for Israel to justify. They've been rescued from slavery in Egypt around 1,500 years before our Lord came to earth. And Yahweh, the one true God, has done this amazing social and religious venture in transplanting hundreds of thousands of people to live a nomadic existence in the Sinai Desert. Now, there is some promising stuff here in the praises that are sung, the words that are believed by God's people in verse 12 but ultimately they're going to have a problem with short-term memory loss. And it's this forgetting and unbelief and not waiting for God's counsel that's going to run as this undercurrent through all of the mess-ups and feelings that follow. And the psalm now goes on to highlight six specific incidents, the majority of which come from the book of Numbers, which you can read at your leisure. And not only do they demonstrate individual feelings, but I believe they're arranged to show a progression. So let's look at the first one in verses 14 and 15. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. Now, one obvious disadvantage of being in a desert was a distinct lack of local Egyptian restaurants serving up fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic, all of which produce, recorded in Numbers 11, the people said they got for free in Egypt. They were hankering after what they had before, rather than just this manna that God had given them. In fact, so bad was this craving that some people had due to the Egyptian Brexit, they wanted an about-turn march straight back into Pharaoh's arms. They had got sick of the Lord's provision, and they wanted meat. And as is often the case, be really careful what you wish for, because you may just get it. And so these people get an enormous delivery of quail, bird meat, as well as deadly plague for their greed and lack of faith. In fact, this whole unpleasant incident is memorialized in a place name, which means graves of craving. Graves of craving. These people dug their own graves by seeking only to satisfy and gratify their physical and aesthetic desires. They didn't care anything for God, his plans, or anything beyond the dinner for tonight. And the King James translation of verse 15 kind of says it all without further comment. And he gave them the request, but sent leanness into their soul. Let's move on to the second incident in 16 and 18. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. 
Now, in Numbers chapter 16, there's a record of an attempted coup by a number of folk, including this Dathan and Abiram, as well as Korah, a Levite priest who really should have known better. These people are jealous of Moses and Aaron, and they publicly question whether their holiness is not just as good as those of the two brothers. They claim to speak for the people, claiming the Lord is with them and truth is on their side. You've got to be very sure that's the case when you do that publicly. But their feeling moved on their whole move from craving of the self-gratification to an envy that seeks to destroy and pull down others. It says, I want what you have and I want it for myself and I don't care what happens to you. Their questioning publicly of Moses and Aaron is born out of a jealousy, pride and selfish ambition that wants to trample them down. And there's going to be a rebellion unless this is dealt with. Now, you can imagine the average Israelite witnessing this embarrassing public spat may well have wanted the ground to open up and swallow them, as we would say. And Well, actually, as it happened, this is what happened. These rebellious men suffered the judgment of God going down alive to the pit. How dangerous it is to question God's spiritual authority when our motives are impure and the effects would be devastating to God's people. So what's the next stop, the third stop on the journey after looking after one's own desire, self-gratification, to tearing other, down other people? The third step is the removal and exchange of God for something that may be a wee bit more convenient. Let's read verses 19 to 23. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, uses this phrase, exchanging the glory of God for an image, to open up his big argument that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this begins with an exchanging of God's glory for something else in creation, something that is less than God. In this incident, the people were making a golden calf. They were worshipping it as Israel's saviour. And this golden calf had been manufactured at exactly the same time Moses was receiving God's Ten Commandments and the plan for the tabernacle, how God would live amongst his people. If the people had only just patiently waited for Moses to come down to learn what God had taught them, they would very easily and quickly have realized that what was bovine was not divine. Now, whether we consider ourselves religious or not, if we're not worshiping and living lives according to the God revealed in the scriptures, we're actually exchanging his glory for a God of our own making, one often who satisfies our desires and allows us to get our own way without any kind of judgment. It's not the God of the Bible, however. So this was a very great sin, and God you know, has a right to be just and angry, to punish sin. He is a God of justice. But we see a little glimpse of something deeply spiritual here in Moses' request to be punished in place of the people so that they could live. You see, when Moses had been up on that mountain receiving God's word and, and, and seeing the plans for this tabernacle, he had seen right into the heart of God. And this humble man shows tremendous courage and spiritual understanding in offering himself as a substitute in, him, in whom sin could be punished so that people could go free. 
Now, as we understand as New Testament Christians, he got the idea of substitution right, but the person wrong. It was only going to be our Lord Jesus Christ who could perfectly stand in that breach. So what happens then after idolatry? Let's read verses 24 to 27. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in the promise. They murmured in the tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. So whenever we've dethroned God, it's only a short step to us becoming grumbling, unthankful, and despising good things. The people are, if you like, coming to the approach of the promised land, but they're now starting to murmur in their, in their tents and grumble against Moses and Aaron. In fact, it crescendos to a climax in the fact that they despise the land. Several spies had gone out to look and see what is this land like, and all but two of them brought back a very unpleasant report. While the land was good itself, there were people who were giants. It was deadly. They would swallow up the inhabitants. And the people felt that the land was not good. Ingratitude for the good things of God is the next stage after idolatry, Paul describes in Romans 1. Because ingratitude, not acknowledging God, leads to a despising, a devaluing, and a debasing of things that are created good. How awful it is to say that something that is good as these people did with God's promised land, was bad. And Paul, as you know from Romans 1, will go on to describe how the goodness, for example, of the sexual complementarity between male and female would be debased. And he ends with a long list of things that are most certainly not good, following on from people's refusal to give thanks to God. So the Israelites are in a very, very difficult situation. And what happens now is that they apostatize. They break away from God in verses 28 to 31. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. So God had brought the Israelites into the desert on eagle's wings, as he said, and he was going to make a covenant with them. He would be their God and they would be his people. But what the Israelites did was that they moved away from that and they instead yoked themselves to, to this local foreign Baal or master God of the Moabites. It's a complete denial of everything they once believed and knew and witnessed. Now, Peor was a hilltop in Moabite territory. And, and from this mountaintop, or this hilltop, you could see the promised land that God was going to give the Israelites. You could survey it, you had a good view of it. It's the place where Balaam was asked to look out and see the Israelite camp and curse it. But also at Peor was society, civilization, trade, religion, and community. Something the Israelites hadn't encountered for, for decades, a settled civilization. So when Israel came to Peor, they had a literal choice to make. The land of God's promise or the kingdoms of this world. And they chose poorly. What is physically in sight of them, right actually in front of them, there's an open invitation for the Lord to go in and take possession of the land. No, that's not good enough. 
they refuse to believe what God has given them right in front of their eyes, what they can actually see. They have evidence and they refuse to believe it. And instead they go it perversely the opposite direction. And so in this darkest of Israel's moments, we get another picture of grace, but grace in judgment in the person of this man, Phinehas. Now, after lunch, you can read about his deadly facility with a spear in Numbers 25. But he, through his act, becomes an example of a person whose faith and belief in God is credited to his account as righteousness. It says here, it was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Now, Phineas wasn't righteous because he did lots of good and holy things. No, his righteous deeds flowed from having committed himself to the God, believing the God and accepting and trusting who that God was through what Moses and Aaron had told him. He was righteous because he accepted as true the word of God from God's representatives. So we're on now to our sixth and final uh, picture in the art gallery, the demonic art gallery of sin in God's people. And let's see what happens in verses 32 and 33. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. Here we see an awful example where they are causing other people to sin. Even a man as great as Moses is pushed too far at Meribah, or quarreling with the people's incessant demands for water. You know, the Lord Jesus roundly condemned others who caused other people to sin and put stumbling blocks in their way. And here Moses is so strongly provoked that bitterness finds root in his inner being, his spirit, and it's expressed outwardly by what he rashly says and in striking the rock that God had told him only to speak to. It's such a vivid reminder that even the most holy and godly of the Lord's people aren't immune from sin in this life. But woe to those people who cause the godly to sin and to stumble. So what is the end result of these six stages? We've gone on from people self-gratification being their God to wanting to be envious and jealous of others have what they have to exchanging God's glory. We then see them grumbling and murmuring and perverting what is good, refusing to accept and acknowledge God as the giver of good things. They then fall away completely, yoking themselves to foreign gods and involve everyone else in their sin. It becomes an absolute mess. And very simply, what this chunk, which I'm glad we're moving on from, tells us is that, you know, if we don't follow the one true Lord, our personal ethics and lifestyle begin to generate, to degenerate, and society, society inevitably follows as we're going to see in 34 to 43. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nation so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low 
to their iniquity. So what, what do we see in these verses? Well, we see vulnerable children are sacrificed to appease the gods of the age. Murder is common. Faithlessness characterizes relationships of all types. And there's this awful analogy of spiritual adultery applied to God's holy people. God's holy people who are now rendered worthless. They're brought low and defiled. There is personal, moral, and societal degeneration whenever our focus gets removed from God. This six-fold progression of sin is complete from self to others to God being dethroned and destroyed, debasing the good, rejecting things that we should have become thankful for. It's now played out in power struggles, exploitation, distress, destruction, and death. It's all in there. And it's almost a prescient view of modern society when the veneer is scratched a bit. Israel in these verses were now in the promised land. They had enjoyed good times under David and Solomon, but they slipped away again and they found themselves uprooted from their land in exile. In fact, they got exactly what they craved for. They wanted to worship other gods and uh, understand what other people's society and culture was like. And so God gave them over to it. She, Israel returns to an even worse state than the first when she was under Egyptian rule. And so this psalm, if it was to end here, would almost have ended as Psalm 90 begun, at the very edge of despair. Danny showed us a few weeks ago how in Psalm 90, Moses reflects in despair at the supposed futility of his existence after being tending sheep for 40 years, having messed up his deliverance of God's people by his own human efforts. We've certainly seen in Psalm 106 how the Lord gives experiences, but they're bitter ones. <coughs> what about the rest? What about this hope that the Lord shows us through experience how and why we should trust his loving promises? Well, let's find our hope in Jesus in the last few verses of this psalm in 44 to 48. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So in this really dark psalm, we've seen two shafts of light come through in the person of Moses and Phinehas. But it's not them that we want to concentrate on. We need to see that these little shafts of light are those that are, are, those that are being shone into a dark, dark prison cell. While we're thankful for these beams of light, they tell of a brighter and greater world beyond the darkness. A world that is characterized by real freedom, life and health and peace. Here with the people of God, we're at the edge of a long period of exile. It seems that everything as Moses felt from his life was futile and wasted. But now there is a hope that God will deliver these messed up people. He will gather them, gather them from the nations. He will undo the judgment that they deserved. And you know, today some people feel that they are too far gone in their sin, that there's no remedy for them, that God wouldn't ever accept them, that they are beyond hope and redemption. But that's not true, because this psalm concludes by showing us the father heart of God, who no longer is abhorring his inheritance, but he delights and glories in his people. And this is only possible because of God's nevertheless 
in verse 44. It's the turning point. It's the word that plumbs the great depths of God's covenant love. It's a love that doesn't know any height or depth because as the children's course teaches us, it's so high you can't get over it and so low you can't get under it. You are not beyond God's rescue because of his nevertheless. And what is this nevertheless? Well, it's the work and person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of him today, we can pray with the psalmist as he did at the start, Lord, remember me. We can, like the thief on the cross, ask the Lord Jesus Christ to take us into his kingdom. Because we find when we come to it that he has done it all. You see, the repeated patterns of sin and fear that characterize us without God, we can never break ourselves. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ whose life succeeded where ours always came unstuck. He overcame each specific sin and failure that these Israelites faced, living a life of obedience, not rebellion. He didn't satisfy his physical cravings in the desert to turn rocks to bread. He did good to others. He healed, saved, restored, and built them up. He didn't tear them down or treat them as objects. And far from causing others to sin, he forgave sins. You'll remember that he praised and thanked God as Father, worshipping him without grumbling or murmuring. He fully trusted in God rather than abandoning faith in the promises. And just like the Israelites were faced with this choice between two worlds, two countries, two homelands, the Lord Jesus Christ, tempted by Satan, he saw God's eternal kingdom with redeemed humanity, you and me, redeemed, free from sin, worshipping, safe from sin, death and disease for all eternity. He saw that. He saw what Satan had to offer, the kingdoms of this world, the unregenerate people that would make them up, and he chose wisely. He chose it on our behalf. He kept God's covenant, and because of this, he can offer us a new covenant, a new agreement, which is God's nevertheless. A covenant written in our hearts so that we obey willingly, not in stone tablets, not a grumbling uh, servitude to another God. No, freedom in his name. So as we conclude, I want us to think how, as Christians, maybe we can meditate on some of these things and, and actually gain both an example, maybe not to follow, as well as encouragement. Think about the how of each of these six instances, and it's very humbling and difficult, but it is a useful exercise to ask, how am I rebelling against the Lord? How am I wanting to satisfy my own desires rather than God's? How is my speech helping to build others up? Or is it more likely tearing them down? Think about and use these examples to stimulate your efforts as a Christian to pursue holiness and work out the salvation that God has given you. But also take a step back and ask, maybe more seriously for some of us, am I on a journey with any of these sins, any of this progression of these six things we've talked about? Does unbelief and forgetfulness actually run under my Christian experience? And I forget to learn what God is like. I forget to trust him. You know, am I doing something or believing something that is frankly immoral or in direct disobedience to clear teachings in scripture? Am I actively leading others into sin? Because if so, I need to ask myself, not just I'm going to stop doing that and, and get right back to, to, to where I'd like to be with God, but I have to actually ask myself, have I moved along this progression because I never really knew God's covenant love. I never really settled the question of do I desire what's in my heart or what's 
in God's heart? And have I exchanged the truth of God for a lie? And maybe that's why my life as a Christian is perhaps going or about to go off the rails. But the true believer's heart is, is different. And in closing, 1 Chronicles 16 records David's prayer as the ark was brought to a tent in Jerusalem. God's, if you like, dwelling place with his people. Now, we don't have time to go into it, but it contains so much language and imagery that's reflected in this fourth book of Psalms that it'll probably be familiar to you if you've been listening to these services and, and attending uh, our home groups. And interestingly, at the end of David's prayer, the chronicler just inserts a little extra comment, which is actually verse 47 from this psalm. He says, Say also, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. This is what true faith in God's covenant love does. It makes it personal and prays it back to God. It rejoices in who God is, what he's done. But it's realistic, looking at the current situation of God's people and knowing that it can be quite dark. It maybe seems that faith in his promise is, is worthless. It is failed. But faith looks to that light outside the dark prison, knowing it comes from God. And it sees today how God is still gathering people out of captivity of sin, away from repeating patterns of rebellion and, and self-destruction. God who is forming a new people eager to please him from the heart. So in the final sum up then for the Christian, I think the Lord is showing us through Christ's experience how and why we should trust his loving promises, promises that remain for all eternity. Let us bless the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your great and precious promises and we thank you that through our Lord Jesus Christ we can enjoy every one of them free from guilt free from sin. Help us, Father, to use these passages, these examples from your word to stimulate ourselves to greater holiness. If we're not yet, Father Christian, help us to see in your heart such great depths of love in sending Christ, your Son, to die for the sins of the world. We pray, Father, you would give us strength as we meditate on your word. Please, Father, continue your mission of rescuing scattered people, your people scattered, Father, through every tribe and tongue, and bring them again in the unity of the Spirit to the knowledge of your Son and your loving care. Keep us safe, Father, this week, and bless us for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Remember us this day, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.